It's official. The 2024 election cycle has begun. And what better way to kick it off than with President Trump announcing his candidacy months before probably anybody else is going to. And this is no surprise. We predicted this months ago, but we knew that Trump could not stay away. Not to mention he hinted to it so many times. I mean, you know, we have a big announcement. Something's brewing. I can't say what. He kept, like, hinting and telling us there was going to be a big announcement coming. I can't tell you, like, what exactly do you think it's going to be? And, look, his announcement speech, in my opinion, was exactly the right tone, exactly the messaging that was needed. The 2024 race is officially underway, so buckle up because it's going to be a fun ride. I don't care if you love him or hate him. Whoever you support, this is going to be a very entertaining two years. Obviously, there's a lot at stake here, especially with the country going down the tubes, thanks to Biden and the Democrats. Now, there were some people who criticized the Trump speech as low energy. Did And it's unbelievable because the man can do no right, because when he's like obnoxious, you know, when he when he when he does his Trump thing and uh, when he's loud and bombastic, they criticize him. Right. So then they tell him he's not presidential. And then he's polished and measured and much more subdued, and they call him low energy. So whatever he does, they're going to criticize. That That is Trump, right? He blasted Biden in this speech. That's not hard to do. He pushed MAGA heavily. I'm going to read you some clips here, some quotes, I should say, from the speech. But Trump focused on how all the things that Biden has done to drive the country to the ground in less than two years, the immense damage that he has caused— And Trump said, quote, America's comeback starts now. He said that when he left office, the United, and we have a lot of of other news of the day to get to. He said we, a lot of news on Iran. Uh, he says that the United States, and by the way, there's a claim that the Biden deleted tweet, the the deleted White House tweet may actually have been a crime, that it might have been a crime. They might have broken the law when they deleted that bogus tweet where Biden took credit for increasing Social Security checks when it turns out it's tied directly to inflation. So we will get to that. But Trump said that when he left office, the United States was ready for its golden age. The nation was at the pinnacle of power, prosperity and prestige, towering above all rivals, vanquishing all enemies, striding into the future, confident and strong. He went through his accomplishments, including the booming economy, energy independence, decreased drug flow over the border, tight trade deals with China. Trump celebrated the accomplishments of his administration, saying that China was kneeling on its heels. The vicious ISIS caliphate, which no president was able to conquer, was decimated by me and our great warriors in less than three weeks. And he said North Korea had not launched a single long range missile since his summit with Kim Jong Un. Under our leadership, we were a great and glorious nation, something you have not heard for quite a long period of time. And the speech was more sedate, as I said, but he said Trump said we're going to keep it very elegant. But the reason he did that is because he knows that he's got this reputation for being toxic. He knows that it bothers people. They think that Trump is vulgar. They think that he gets a little bit nasty at times, a little bit too negative. Sometimes he'll make fun of his opponents, Democrat and Republican. So this was Trump. It was very calculated, in my opinion. Trump said, I'm going to get up there. They want me to act presidential. I'm going to act presidential. So what do they do? They criticize him. They say, oh, he's so low energy, which, by the way, is they're, what they're doing is they're mocking what Trump used to make fun of with Jeb Bush. Trump Trump called Jeb Bush low energy. So Trump said, listen, we're going to keep it ele- elegant. He also told the crowd, quote, Nancy Pelosi has been fired. 
He said we will wage war. And by the way, that you know, he meant that Pelosi was no longer going to be the Speaker of the House. But now it turns out uh, following the speech was announced today, Thursday, that Pelosi actually uh, is stepping down from her leadership. She's not even going to try to be the minority leader anymore. I mean, look, she's been around quite a long time. She's been around Washington as long as Biden, and she's actually older than Biden. And um, Trump said, quote, we'll wage war on the cartels. We'll stop fentanyl and deadly drugs from killing 200,000 Americans a year. When I'm in the White House, our schools will cease pushing critical race theory. Um, he's radical and gender insanity uh, or they'll lose federal funding. So that's obviously a very big deal. That's a very exciting pledge that he's making. And he, when he makes pledges, unlike most other politicians, he follows through and including when it's the embassy move, which at the time was highly unpopular. Now, it turns out in retrospect was an amazing move and including pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, which he still gets flack for. Um, he said that biological men will be banned from competing in women's sports. Quote, we will abolish every Biden COVID mandate, COVID mandate, rehire every patriot who was fired from our military with an apology and full payback. And he said that he would push for term limits for members of Congress. He would end stock trading for Congress members, uh, voter ID. He'd, he'd implement voter ID requirements. Only paper ballots will be used. So listen, whatever you feel about Trump, I know a lot of people are down on Trump. I know a lot of people think he's a liability. He's toxic. He has no chance of winning. Bad idea for him to to win the primary. Bad idea for him to be the nominee. We can debate all of that. But the messaging was spot on. The tone was spot on, in my opinion. And I don't think that any candidate can beat Trump in the primaries. I'm not talking about the general election. But when you look at the primaries and I I know that independent voters don't like Trump. Trump has a has a ceiling. He has a he has a minimum of people who will always love him, rally around him somewhere around 40 percent of the country, something around I would say 60, 70 percent of Republicans will be with Trump no matter what. That's that's why his you know primary endorsements went did, did so well in the primaries, because Republican voters, for the most part, love him. I know that half the country despises Trump and that is never going to change. So it's a very interesting dynamic there. But I'm sorry. What happens is if Trump runs against five candidates, the other four candidates, Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, you name them. They uh, they end up or or even DeSantis. You're going to tell me, no, DeSantis is different. DeSantis is going to have such a loyal following. They'll rally around him. We'll have to wait and see. But Trump is like the one person who he, he attracts people who are not even necessarily Republican voters, but they just like Trump. They're Trumpians. So we're going to have to, you know, he has, so I, I believe that he's got a huge chunk of followers and uh, he's unbeatable in the primaries, but maybe I'll be proven wrong. Welcome to the Yaakov M show on the VIN News Podcast. Send us an email. I try to read every email, try to respond. Josh at VINnews.com. Josh at VINnews.com. Now, I, I want to go back for a moment because everybody's blaming Trump for the lack of a red wave, for the severe, immense disappointment on election night. Well, I looked at some of the numbers, and it's not as simple as everybody's saying, so I just want to share the numbers. I'll let you judge for yourself. Trump in the House, okay, we'll get to the Senate in a moment, but and we know about the Senate. The Senate came down to five states, which are pretty purple states. We know about Arizona. We know about Nevada. And, yes, the Trump candidates did not do well, although McConnell gave no money whatsoever to Blake Masters in Arizona. But the Senate is a different d- discussion. But let's talk about the House. In the House, and, and overall, Trump's endorsements got 83% victory. Trump had an 83% success rate. I'm not talking about the primary now. In the general election, last week, Election Day, okay, Tuesday, November 8th, Trump had an 83% success rating, meaning 83% of Trump's endorsements 
won in the general election. That's not bad. Okay, that's a pretty solid number. I wonder how many other politicians can boast that number. But listen to the numbers in the House, because this is astonishing. He made 159 endorsements of House candidates in the general election, Trump. You know how many losses? 159 endorsements, 13 losses. Okay, Trump's record on election night uh, of his endorsements in the House, 146 to 13, 146 Trump candidates in the House, one and only 13 lost. And even of those 13, believe it or not, it wasn't such, such a liability as I'm going to explain because they were long shots, but 146 and 13. So we were supposed to have a red wave, right? If, if every Trump candidate wins, that's 159 wins, okay, in the House, which is obviously a very nice number that would have put they, – they, they did – the Republicans are in control of the House, but it would have even been a higher number, significantly higher. But you're talking about those 13 candidates. So Trump, 146 and 13, that's not bad. That's solid, okay? Now, of those, of the 13 – Eight of them were challengers. There was only one incumbent out of those 13. Eight were challengers, four were open seats, and then one incumbent. Now, incumbents have a much easier time, and J.D. Vance made this point. He's a senator of Ohio who who, who was endorsed by Trump who won. But uh, he said that the incumbents, they get a lot of funding from the party and, and, and they get funding from, you know, they, they have an easier time raising money themselves. Obviously, the incumbents had a huge, huge, if you look at the numbers in the House, huge financial advantage. So, uh, Trump, 13 of his endorsements lost in the House, and of those, eight were challengers to incumbents, four were open seats, and there was only one incumbent that actually lost. So that really, really kind of mitigates. That gives you pause here. Maybe it wasn't Trump. Maybe we're talking about a lot of blue states and a lot of blue districts that just never had a shot, whoever the Republican worked, because you know th- that's just how the system works. So Trump had a pretty good track record now in the Senate. You have to remember something. In the Senate, the key states obviously were Nevada, Pennsylvania, Arizona, New Hampshire, and now Georgia. But Georgia doesn't even matter because the Democrats, of course, are keeping control of the Senate uh, by at least 51 seats. But uh, here's what you have to realize. The Republicans had a huge disadvantage in the Senate because you had neck and neck races in the Senate. First of all, all these states, these are pretty blue states. Okay, we have to accept the reality that it ends up being Ohio, Pennsylvania, Arizona, New Hampshire, Nevada, Georgia, you know, are are mainly the deciding states in the presidential race, by the way, and, and in who controls the Senate and the House. These are pretty blue states. Okay, Fetterman won. That tells you anything you need to know. Fetterman beat Dr. Oz. You know, I, I honestly believe if the, if the state of Pennsylvania was halfway normal, I mean, a coffee cup could have beaten Fetterman. I mean, a a, a lamppost could have beaten Fetterman. I'm sorry to say I feel bad for the person. I really, really mean that. Sincerely, it's, 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 it's a sad situation, but it is what it is. But you have to realize something. The Republicans... The, the the map was disadvantageous to the Republicans, as I said before, because you had 34 seats that were up for election in the Senate. Of those, 20 were Republicans defending their seats. Only 14 were Democrat seats. So that that means that you, ha- you already have the odds stacked against the Republicans. So it's possible that the results, the, the lack of a blue wave, um, of a red wave, I should say. There wasn't a blue wave either. The Democrats are acting like they're winning, beating their chest. They should not be. But it's possible that it really, really was not about Trump. All right. Here's what's terrifying is Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democrats have already to begun. They think they've gotten this huge mandate. They're acting like they had some kind of major victory. They didn't. The Democrats actually did worse than the Republicans. The bar was set higher for the Republicans. So the expectations were high. And I I fault partially the media for that. But it is what it is. The Democrats, 
they, they suffered big time, okay? But they're acting like they won, and now they're acting as though the country actually approves of their radical, socialist, t- horrific, horrific policies, leftist policies, and now they're getting even more radical. They feel empowered to be even more radical. And the proof is Chuck Schumer already has announced they're pushing for amnesty for 11 million illegals. Schumer didn't wait. He waited. He did barely waited a week to, 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 to announce that they're going to try to give amnesty to 11 million illegals. You lost. You lost the House. You barely hung on to the Senate by a thread. The, the country does not like your policies. The country doesn't want to give amnesty to 11 million illegals, but it gets even more chilling. It's, I'm talking ter- – it's downright terrifying because the Democrats who had a terrible night on Election Day feel like, all right, this is it. We can be even more radical than we were because we're still going to keep on winning – And get this, Schumer says, you know why we have to make 11 million illegals? You know why we have to make them legal? He says because Americans are not having as many kids. He's saying that we have to basically get – we have to fill the void, the vacancy, the the population, the U.S. population is vanishing. And therefore, we need to fill that void with illegals. We need to – to replace the vanishing U.S. population with illegals. So, like, this confirms every conspiracy theory that you can come up with. We've always said this, that Democrats are using illegals as a way, as a means of of, of increasing the number of Democrat voters. Well, that's basically been confirmed here. This is, Listen to this shocking clip of Senator Chuck Schumer. Now more than ever, we're short of workers. Uh, we have a population that is not reproducing it on its own with the same level that it used to. The <laughs> only way we're going to have a great future in America is if we welcome and embrace immigrants, the dreamers and all of them, because our ultimate goal is to help the dreamers but get a path to citizenship for all 11 million or however many undocumented <laughs> there are here. Did you hear what he said? That was a press conference that they held literally about DACA and about amnesty. Did you hear what he said? He said people, the American population, are not reproducing like they used to, and therefore we need to fill the void. Those were his exact words, okay? Well, why are America, the American population not reproducing? Because of Democrat policies. You encourage abortion, okay? You encourage people to not have families. You encourage people to literally kill unborn children. So the Democrat policies, this is not a conspiracy theory. These are facts. The Democrat policies have encouraged people don't have kids, don't reproduce, get rid of the family. Oh, and then wait, we're going to have a void. We need people to come into this country. We need people to work. So we have too few people. Well, I guess we're going to have to take 11 million illegals. They came to the country illegally. They broke the law. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to give them amnesty. We don't have a choice because our policies have made too few American families. This is stunning. This this is mind-boggling. And here's what I say. Let's even say that he's right. Let's even say that there's there's a void in the population, okay? Why don't you bring people in legally? It doesn't mean you got to give amnesty to the people who came across, who broke the law and who cheated their way in. Why not bring people in legally, people who are educated, people who will benefit the American taxpayer, as opposed to people who are going to come in and feed off our programs like leeches and bloodsuckers come to the United States and live off of government programs and cost us billions of dollars why not? No, you know, we need to bring in illegals who are going to cost us billions in all these social programs and overwhelm the system. Why, why, why is Schumer doing that? Why not take Europeans or even take people from South America, educated people who are going to work hard? They're going to pay taxes. They're going to actually generate productivity for this country instead of leeching off of us because it's about creating Democrat voters. The illegals come in. 
They become citizens. They vote Democrat. And by the way, even if Schumer's right, I have another great point over here. Let's say Schumer's right that, listen, we have this problem. Population's not growing fast enough. So we, we need to make them legal. Why do you need to make them legal? Just they're not going anywhere. They're in the country. They're working. They're, they're, whatever jobs you're looking for them to fill, they're already filling. OK, so like they're doing whatever they would be doing when you make them legal and give them amnesty. They're already doing that now. So what are you going to gain? The answer is because they can't vote. You have to make them legal in order to make them able to vote Democrat. And that's really what this is all about. So the Democrats lose the House, and yet they're acting as though this was a major win, and now it's time. And you know what it's like? It's like because the expectations were the bar was so low – it's like it's like, wow, we won. No, you didn't when you lost the House. Yeah, but we were supposed to lose by a lot bigger margin. It's like when they say, oh, Biden had a great press conference. Why? Because he didn't fall asleep. He was up there for an hour and a half and he stayed awake the entire time. Oh, wow. Let's give 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 credit to Biden. All right. Meanwhile, House Republicans are investigating Joe Biden's corrupt business dealings. Now, here's my problem with this. They've announced that they're going to be investigating Joe Biden, his business, foreign business dealings, whether he committed any crimes. Hunter, we know Burisma, China. I mean, the list goes on and on. Billions of dollars from Russia. Biden's brother, the whole Biden crime family, the Biden Biden crime syndicate. It's it's James brother, Joe Biden's brother. It's Hunter Biden. They're all just a bunch of crooks and criminals. Well, here's my problem. You investigate. If you don't impeach, then it's a waste of time. They're going to go and investigate and they're going to hold press conferences. They're going to have these hearings and testimony and all of that. And at the end of the day, what's going to happen? They're just going to shut the book. Nobody's going to get punished. Zero consequences because the Republicans are gutless. I'm sorry. I have to say it. They never have the spine to actually follow through and impeach. Unlike the Democrats who impeached Trump twice, twice for nothing, for made up for for, it was it was a hoax. And, and and it was a sham and it was just it was fabricated. And but they the Democrats don't care because they wanted to punish Trump. They punished Trump. But the Republicans never. I, I mean, I, if Biden commits war crimes and, and he pretty much already has. Look what he did in Afghanistan when he killed those innocent people, even though he had no evidence. He thought that, you know, he, he claims that they, he thought they were terrorists and they made a mistake. But they don't impeach Biden no matter what he does. And he has committed very, very, very serious crime. So I'm sorry, but to me, it's a big waste of time. You know, do something, do something productive. You know, if you're going to impeach, then impeach. But if you're not, and you're just trying to like, you know, just do this, this whole dog and pony show, then I'd rather you actually pass some decent legislation and do something productive instead of, uh, you know, all the, like we told you with Durham, you know, we told you Durham is never actually going to indict anybody that we've actually ever heard of. And that's exactly what happened. The Durham investigation is basically closed now. And, uh, he, you know, like, what was that? That like, he lost a couple of cases. Then there was like that one, the one indictment, one, one charge against who that lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, who, uh, forged a, an email or, you know, whatever it was. Um, all right. Dave Chappelle and Kanye West, we got to do a separate show. This whole issue, the, the, which is a huge issue, a very, very serious and honestly frightening issue with, with anti-Semitism, which is growing. This rampant anti-Semitism and, you know, a lot of people now, a lot of very famous celebrities are endorsing anti-Semitism. It's it's terrifying. I'll be honest. So uh, we got to dedicate kind of a separate episode just to that issue and focus on anti-Semitism and how mainstream it's becoming. I'm not saying Dave Chappelle is an anti-Semite. not going there right now. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, I wrote Not Bad About It, which I'll share with you. But look, his comedy routine was very, very disturbing, a lot of the things that he said. So we need to dedicate a whole segment to that, so keep an eye keep an eye out for that. All right, Iran. We must tell you about what's going on in Iran. 
because there have been mass protests in Iran for months. The the civil unrest in Iran, people are furious and they are protesting, violent protests. They are very, very angry and they have every right to be, obviously, against the evil, evil terrorist regime uh, who's actually who's who's as vicious with their own uh, citizens and dissidents as they are. With, with with people in other countries, you know, that they uh, that they torture and, and 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 commit terror attacks and murder. So for months, there have been mass protests over human rights abuses. And this is the worst um, protest, the worst unrest that Iran has suffered in decades. And it's worse than the Arab Spring. And that was bad. And you know, it, what's amazing is that if, if we had a normal president of the United States, he would maybe uh, exploit this. He would maybe take advantage of the situation, send weapons to protesters, uh, you know, do sorts, all sorts of things under the radar to help them topple the regime from within. But of course, Biden's not going to do that. And now Iran is about to start executing protesters who they've arrested and rounded up. And there may be as many, I'm not exaggerating here, there may be as many as 15,000 protesters that the Iranians are getting ready to execute, to execute, because they're starting to execute people who were arrested for protesting, and they, it, they actually passed a law in parliament uh, legalizing, in, in Iranian parliament, legalizing the execution. So it's really stunning here what's happening in Iran. They're saying they want to send a message to the rest of the country by executing protesters because they want to stifle and, and suppress any future protests, obviously. So who's the president of Iran? Ibrahim Raisi, the butcher of Tehran, who has a long history of murdering dissidents in cold blood. The Iranian parliament voted Tuesday overwhelmingly in favor of the de- of carrying out the death penalty, executing protesters. Now, this all began when a woman was arrested and then died in police custody September 16th, Masa Amini. She's a 22-year-old, she was a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, arrested by the morality police in Iran because she wore an improper type of hijab, okay, a hijab, however you pronounce it. She, this This 22-year-old woman in Iran was arrested for wearing an improper type of hijab and and then police the police beat her to death she died of a fatal head injury that resulted from being brutally beaten by the Iranian police how horrific is that the, what these animals did to her since her death there have been nationwide protests the likes of which Iran has not seen in decades you have female protesters who are burning their hijabs in public they're cutting their hair and then CNN reported about a letter signed by 222, I'm sorry, 227 members of parliament urging the protesters uh, to get the, 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 the most harsh possible punishment, which is, of course, the death penalty, in order to teach the rest of the country a lesson in the shortest possible time. That's what the letter said. On Tuesday, parliament voted to impose the death penalty on all protesters in custody. So they voted to impose the death penalty on all protesters in custody, there are 15,000, 15,000 Iranian protesters in custody. So are they going to execute 15,000 people? I don't know. Is there an outcry about this? Has Biden spoken up? Has the world, the Europeans, has anybody spoken up? And look, I understand we don't always get involved in internal issues that go on in these countries. But like, come on, this is by far... The, the, the one of the most dangerous countries in the world, our arch enemy. And listen to this. In the last eight weeks, the regime has already murdered 300 
protesters. They've already murdered over 300 protesters. And by the way, if the media reports that, usually the number is inflated. Usually that number is like a much smaller estimate because the media has a very tough time to get suppressed. So it could be thousands already. So it's a massacre. Biden is sitting by. And, um, you know, this is an opportunity right now for the, the, you know, the Iranian people are furious and they're protesting and they're angry and frightened. And if you give them weapons, oh, boy, they could do tremendous, tremendous damage. There could be a, a, literally a revolt, literally a revolution that could topple the regime. These things have happened in the past. But instead, Biden is Iran's best friend. And, of course, he's been negotiating with them. And meanwhile, wink, wink, allowing them to develop nuclear weapon. We'll get to that. They, they, their stockpile of enriched uranium is bigger than it's ever been. It, it, it's at very, very terrifying, uh, very, very terrifying magnitude here. And uh, here's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for the pallets of cash to be dropped on the runway of the Iranian airport, just like Biden did. And remember, you're going to say, well, didn't the negotiations fall apart? Um, d- didn't Biden, wasn't he not able to renegotiate a nuclear deal with Iran? Number one, Iran is not – they're breaking the deal. They're breaching the deal. The deal is still intact with Europe and other countries, and the Iranians have stockpiled. Their centrifuges are working in addition to the long-range ICBMs that are nuclear capable. uh, The Iranians are enriching uranium. They're literally like a few weeks away, at most a few weeks away from having nuclear bombs that they then have the missiles already for, which they can then arm the missiles and then shoot them almost anywhere in the world. So they're weeks away from a nuclear weapon, a long-range nuclear weapon. If they don't already have one, which very likely they do, as we'll explain. But so that's step one. Step two is it Biden. It's all it's all a sham. Biden is going to renegotiate. It's going to be like Obama. He it, he will renegotiate a nuclear deal with Iran, a much worse deal than the original one, which was which was horrific, which which which, which was a disaster. And this one's going to be even worse. Trust me. And why didn't he do it until now? Because one reason, the election, the midterms, he wanted to get past the midterms. And now that the midterms are over, I guarantee you that Biden is over the next two years going to announce a nuclear deal with Iran and even more concessions. But he's giving them cover. They're developing a nuke. They're not getting punished. They're not getting consequences. They're not getting sanctioned. And by the way, aside from the obvious concern of the Iranians having a nuclear weapon, you have to realize something else. Very important. It gives them a ton of leverage in negotiations because let's say the Iranians, let's say Biden comes to come some kind of deal with them and they halt their nuclear program, or let's even say that they destroy their enriched uranium. I don't believe they will. I think they're going to hide it or, or maybe they destroy their centrifuges. I don't believe they will, but they're still going to force all sorts of concessions when it comes to terror. So the Iranians, they're, they're the world's number one state sponsor of terror, What's going to happen is they're going to be allowed – they're going to remove the terror label from a lot of the Iranian terrorist uh, groups that they sponsor. And they're already attacking. There was a drone attack on an Israeli oil tanker just this week, I think yesterday. And what they're going to do is they're going to let the Iranians continue to support and sponsor all this terror everywhere. And and it's going to be like, well, how can you let the Iranians – how can a nuclear deal not include all the terrorism that they sponsor, all the thousands of people they murder? And and Biden's going to say or whoever is running the show there is going to say, well, we have no choice because, look, it's better than a nuke. The the Iranians, you know, I, I mean, they, they, they're close to a nuclear weapon. So, yeah, we're going to have to make concessions. We're going to have to let them carry out all these terror attacks. But it's better than having a nuclear bomb. So they use that as leverage as like, well, if they didn't have a nuclear bomb, then we'd press, pressure them to stop their terrorism. But now they have a nuclear bomb. So it's like, well, 
you know, at least we got rid of the bomb. Yeah, we'll let him do all this other stuff, but there's a nuclear threat. So they use that nuclear threat as a way of leveraging to to to, to be allowed to carry to continue to sponsor Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, you know, the Houthis, and and all these other terrorist groups, you know, and the IR, obviously the IRGC. So that, that that's really what this is all about. And you know, the only person who's been brave enough to fight Iran all this time is one man, right? The man who killed Soleimani. That man, of course, is the man who just announced that he's running, President Trump. And remember what happened? Remember what happened after Trump killed Soleimani? The, the, the one, perhaps the, the best move. Trump did a lot of good things. And you could argue that the one that was most beneficial to the world at large was murdering Soleimani, the number one terrorist on the planet. And they punished him. They, Trump got so much backlash. You're starting World War III. Obviously, it never happened. Uh, you know, they, 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 the Congress voted to take away Trump's authority to then murder more terrorists, to assassinate terrorists. And what happened? Trump vetoed it, of course. So like insane, insane stuff. Bush never did anything with Iran. Obama gave Iran billions of dollars and uh, signed this bogus nuclear deal. Somehow Trump was the bad guy, the only man with the courage to take on Iran and to take on China. And he always got flack for it. It's 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 just it, it, it's inexplicable. I mean, it's just mind boggling. Uh, and, and with Biden, the Iranians have played Biden like a fiddle. And think about this contrast Biden's treatment of Iran with the way Biden treats the Palestinians. Uh, I'm sorry, with the way Biden treats Israel, Biden's treatment of Iran and the Palestinians he 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 just he bends over he gushes and 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 he just bends over backward giving them the world caving into Iran and the Palestinians and yet when it comes to Israel Biden's actually tougher on Israel tougher on Israel and now you have the state department accusing the israeli government of terrorism literally so they're they're funding iranian terrorism basically they are literally funding the palestinians pay to slay no exaggeration there and yet the israelis somehow are the bad guys think about that you have Biden now pressuring Netanyahu. Netanyahu is forming a government with Itamar Ben Gvir. Okay, Itamar Ben Gvir is a is a a hard line right wing uh, Knesset member, and Biden is telling Netanyahu, "You better not allow Ben Gvir to have uh, any influence in the new government." Now, Ben Gvir had a huge victory, a huge Knesset victory for someone who's so extreme to the right. He won fourteen seats. Okay, Ben Gvir's party won the third largest was the third largest winner in the entire Israeli election, 14 seats in the Knesset. That's a lot of seats. Why? Because Israelis are angry about the leftist government and about the recent terror wave. The Israelis have moved sharply to the right. Okay. well, Biden, it's unbelievable how he refuses to work with an Israeli politician um, who's not a terrorist, but Biden has no problem working, supporting terrorists in Iran and the Palestinians which is total hypocrisy. So, uh, you know, and, 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 and what's happening is here, by the, the Palestinians, they, of course, have their pay-to-slay program, which is they literally pay terrorist families for life. Um, that's They compensate terrorism. That's what they do. And Biden is funneling them hundreds of millions of dollars, which they literally use to then sponsor terrorism. They use that money to literally murder Jews. Um, Israel's a democracy. They, they they democratically elected a right-wing politician who's done nothing wrong and is not a terrorist, but Biden is basically boycotting him. So think of that double standard and tell me, well, but, but Biden is not anti-Jewish. Well, why is he picking on Israel versus the Iranians and the Palestinians? Listen to this. Ned Price, the State Department spokesman, he called Ben Gvir 
abhorrent for attending a memorial of Rabbi Meir Kahana. Okay, uh, the State Department literally criticized Ben Gvir, and they essentially called him a terrorist sympathizer. Now, Ben Gvir, by the way, has repeatedly condemned Mayor Kahana's more radical views. Um, Rabbi Stephen Przanski of the Coalition for Jewish Values, he said, quote, the State Department is funding the PA's ongoing support for terror while rushing to wrongly condemn Ben Gvir for attending a memorial service for someone who died over 30 years ago. This reflects an egregious violation of American law and a blatant double standard at odds with the State Department's proclamations of neutral and fair treatment. We can and shouldn't expect better from U.S. government officials. Ned Price said, quote, celebrating the legacy of a terrorist organization is abhorrent. There is no other word for it. It's abhorrent. So they're calling Mayor Kahana's organization. I think at one point it was labeled a terrorist organization. But like that, it's very, very, very misleading. And um, Ned Price, of course, did not acknowledge. He, he And by the way, he criticized Israeli right-wing extremists and accused them of promoting racism. So you have Ned Price. This does not get a lot of attention, but this is a huge story. Ned Price of the State Department, of Biden State Department, he accused Israel, Israel's right wing, of promoting racism. Okay, that is literally an, a, a talking point of Elon Omar and Rashida Tlaib um, and, and the Palestinians, Mahmoud Abbas. Price did not acknowledge the Palestinian government's role in orchestrating deadly terror attacks. Um, meanwhile, the U.N. has confirmed that the Iranians have increased its massive stockpile of enriched uranium. OK, and meanwhile, they're not allowing inspectors in, of course. They're also they have shut down surveillance cameras, so they have no idea. Number one, the U.N. is saying that the Iranians have a, a, a huge, huge stockpile of uranium, which is enriched to 60 percent purity. By the way, 60 percent purity is one step away from 90% weapons grade. It, it takes much more to get from 20% uranium enriched uranium to, to 60% than it does to get from 60 to 90. So they are right there. They are one step away from weapons grade. We're talking about like uh, 137 pounds of uranium enriched. And that's just an estimate because they don't have access and they have no idea. So it's, it's it, that's at a minimum. They always guess too low and... The Iranians, by the by the way, have hidden uranium at other locations, which has been discovered by the Mossad. But they're not allowing the UN inspectors to check out uh, those locations. So who knows how much uranium is flying around? I mean, do you have uranium in your garage? Like, I don't have I don't have uranium in my house. Like the Iranians, just they just randomly have uranium in all these secret locations that are not officially nuclear sites. All right, and finally, as we mentioned earlier, the White House that deleted tweet, which was debunked by Twitter. Thanks to basically thanks to Elon Musk. And it was a bogus tweet where Biden took credit for increasing Social Security checks. And he deserves credit, but he only deserves credit because it's due to inflation, which Biden's terrible policies have brought us. And, and, and it's literally tied into inflation. Anyway, the deleting of the tweet, the tweet being deleted may have violated federal law. Get this. The same federal law that they're accusing Trump of violating with the uh, with the National Archives situation. What happens is. You're not allowed to remove documents or prevent documents from being sent to the National Archives, right? That's, of course, that what, what that, that FBI raid against Trump was mainly about, it seems. You know, National Archives uh, 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 may be leaking some secrets. I don't know. We're not getting into all that right now. But there's really no evidence that Trump leaked any national security secrets or was hiding any of them that we know of. And, and there have been no charges filed, obviously. But essentially – um, that's the law they're accusing Trump of violating. Well, Biden may have violated that law. So you have a watchdog group now 
that is calling for a federal investigation saying the Biden administration may have violated the Presidential Records Act. That's what it's called. The White House deleted that bogus tweet taking credit for the boost in Social Security checks, and they claimed it was Biden's leadership. It's actually Biden's total failure and abysmal record because, yeah, it's tied into inflation and Biden's responsible for inflation. So it's a bad thing, not a good thing. And, of course, then the White House, you know, tail between their legs, was all embarrassed and sheepishly deleted the tweet. Well, uh, there's a group, this watchdog group, um, sent a letter to the heads of the National Archives. Let me see. This It's called the Protect the Public Trust. That's the name of the watchdog group. And they sent a letter saying, quote, the tweet is almost certainly a record that belongs to the public and subject to the law's destruction protocol. But listen to the wording of this letter because it's really sharply worded. This letter sent to the National Archives saying you better investigate Biden. They're saying deleting that tweet was a violation of this act. So let me read you this letter, quote, outside of the unprecedented uh, reliance on the act to support a subpoena to search the home of a former U.S. president, the act and its enforcement, talking about, again, the uh, the Presidential Records Act. Let me read you this. Outside of the unprecedented reliance on the act to support a subpoena to search the home of a former U.S. president, the act and its enforcement have historically received little attention. Uh, refer- and, and he's, of course, referencing the FBI raid against Trump. Quote, however, now that strict enforcement of the act appears to be a high priority for the archivist of the U.S. and by extension the DOJ, we would like to bring to your attention a matter of serious concern as it applies to preserving the national record of President Joseph Biden. Seniors are getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks in 10 years through President Biden's leadership, said the tweet. And essentially what he's saying is that, uh, listen, by deleting that tweet, that tweet belonged to the National Archives. So so Biden had no right to delete it. And since you're so busy enforcing the law against Trump, a law that nobody ever noticed and nobody cares about, then you better enforce it. You better investigate Biden. According to the Presidential Records Act, a president can only dispose of White House records once the views of the archivists uh, of the U.S. on the proposed disposal have been obtained in writing. <laughs> you cannot make this stuff up. That's going to do it on this busy day, and we will see you next time.